Welcome to Carito Connects. I'm your host, Jen, and I've been conversing with friends around the world about life challenges and impactful moments. Conversations on this platform look at answering the questions, how we overcome challenges and how our experiences shape who we are and the work we do today. I hope this work can inspire you on your own personal and individual journey. Let's dive right in. Hello, my guest today is Singapore-based Diana Ying, founder of The Elemental Practice, where she offers somatic therapy and coaching. What she offers is a synthesis of her personal exploration as a kinesthetic, deeply thinking, feeling, and highly sensitive individual. Uh, Hi, Diana, and welcome to Curito Connects. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with somatic work, you may have heard me talk about it with other somatic practitioners in previous episodes, but it is a very broad subject encompassing many different uh, approaches, and I'd encourage you to Google it and learn more if you are curious, and Diana can tell us more about it too. Uh, But before we dive into the topic, I'm excited to have Diana share with us another topic dear to her heart, which is shifting out of the good girl archetype that is strongly encouraged both by society and culturally and how she was able to shift out of that to find her voice, expression, and authentic self. Diana strongly believes that so much of our ideas and values are held at the level of the body, which is why she offers the somatic work she does. As they say, the body houses a soul, so doesn't that correlate? Without further ado, Diana, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience and talk about what the good girl archetype means and how you broke free of that. Hi, Jen. I'm really glad to be here with you. And, you know, this, yeah, this topic is really close to my heart. Um, Right now, the work I offer spans the gamut of somatic coaching, therapy, um, tension and trauma release exercise, Qigong, a bunch of different modalities. And I see this so much with my clients. And when we got the chance to think about what we might speak about together, to me, being able to discuss this with somebody who also has an Asian lineage, it feels really special because I think there's so much tied up with this idea of being good, like be, you know, be a good girl. And uh, you know, like good girls don't cry. Like there are all of these things that we get said, we get told um, to us from such a young age that we take in. And I think I'm no different. Like for me, when I was a, a little girl, I was very sensitive, very weepy, very shy. And I think I quickly learned that my tears or my intensity of emotion made my family a bit uncomfortable. They didn't know what to do with me. And there would often be this refrain of like, oh, you know, hush, you know, it's okay. Girls don't cry. Don't express yourself this way. Other people are looking. So there was such a notion of shame, I think, that began to be tied in to emotion and I also quickly learned that what seemed to make my parents really happy was for me to do well in school and be quietly playing in the corner and I feel that sort of began to shape the life of the choices that I made for a lot of my life and Singapore where I've grown up very much encourages these set trajectories 
You know, you move from one school to the next. And if you go to this school, it must mean you're going to go to that next school. And the path just continues. And I think when from a young age, we learn how to not listen or we learn that what our body wants to do isn't always welcome. It's almost easier to go along with this pathway that everyone seems to think is the right pathway. And I trotted along that pathway like I was prefect in every school I went to, student counsellor, one of the top students, government scholar, went to Oxford, went to Harvard, you know, got into a, a kind of elite scheme of service in the government, really walking that track and wow, taking all the right like, boxes. So outstanding, Diana. You have such a pretty <laughs> resume there. <laughs> Well, you know, I think I can look back on it and, and just sort of almost feel like it's, it's a little bit laughable because it's, it's basically the, the Asian parent's dream, right? Like this is, this is the ideal pathway that someone would have walked. And I think for me, it came to a point where I was getting a little bit more senior in my work and I realized that I just wasn't feeling satisfied. I think for me, from a young age, I always wanted to be of service. I always wanted to be of direct help to people. And for a while when I was working in the government, at least in Singapore, that's a really great way, actually, to be able to make a difference. But the more senior I got, the more distanced I became from the people who I was helping. And everything began to feel very hollow. And when I made the decision to leave, it was like, I wish I could tell you, it's like such a graceful, mindful decision, you know, that I was like, yes, I, I'm so clear. I'm going to gracefully exit. It was not like that at all. There was so much um, struggle that emerged from within myself. All of these good girl narratives came up with that when I felt like I was going to, I wanted to leave and explore things that I'd been exploring for many years in my own personal time, which was related to the body, to movement, to spirituality. And I, I think the only reason how I arrived at my decision was through a lot of therapy <laughs> in, in that year of making my, my decision. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, um, when we talk about, you know, this good girl, good boy archetype, um, and, you know, again, we said it's not only within Asian culture, it's, you know, cultures around the world. However, one very unique element to Asian culture is the notion of, uh, you know, the Confucian teaching of uh, filial piety, right? Xiao uh, Sun in Chinese. Mm -hmm. So... I thought maybe to ask you how you would thread this value system into, in a way, sometimes I think some of us will say, ah, it's because of that there's this added pressure or this added like weight for being the good girl, good boy archetype. So I, if you want to um, throw in your two cents on this, this one to kind of, uh, you know, for our audience to hear a little bit more about that and your own experience as well. Mm. Yes. Yes. I can't say yes enough. You know, I feel, I feel like this notion of filial piety that 
is expected within family structures, whether nuclear family, extended family, it creates a lot of pressure around speaking up about what might not be what we want. Anything that goes against what an elder might have asked for or requested, it's it's seen as deviant behavior. And I think it then makes it even more challenging because the act of choosing differently from what others expect you to, what your elders expect you to, is is seen as you being like a disappointment within the family. I think there is there there are many layers to this because of that added pressure of filial piety. And even when I look to some of the clients I support right now, it is hard for them to acknowledge that the good girl archetype might have been reinforced by their parents because it's seen as wrong to question their parents or to even be curious about whether what their parents or their elders might have said was right for them was maybe wrong. There's a real hesitance there, I feel, that is very influenced by this notion of needing to be Xiaoshun or filial. So can I can I um, backtrack you a little bit? Yeah. So the good girl archetype that we just illustrated earlier, which yes, I can totally uh, uh, relate to. However, I was definitely not a great student, and I was the rebellious one in my family, so I did not follow that beautiful <laughs> CV trajectory. <laughs> so I have my own sets of issues there, but um, I wanted to ask so. While, you know, when growing up and following the good girl archetype, which I'm sure many people listening can relate to, um, especially if you grew up in an Asian household, actually, actually in some cultures too, it's not necessarily only Asians. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the studying the, you know, what kind of activities you did, what instrument you played, et cetera, et cetera, what schools you went to, which, you know, you went to the best of the best, you know, both in Europe and in the U.S. And then coming back to find yourself in a job that, you know, to what you said earlier, did allow you to do kind of the work you wanted to do, be of service. So you found Mm -hmm. a role within the government to allow you to do that. Um, And then, so out of curiosity, while you were living this archetype life, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know if a uh, boyfriend and marriage and kids through, you know, ended up in that picture as well. Mm-hmm. But how did you then seek out the, you know, like you said earlier, all this sp- spiritual healing stuff on the side? Like, was that out of curiosity for your own needs at the time? Or, you know, how were you exposed to your first yoga class? Or how did you stumble across all these different types of modalities to kind of allow you to figure out? It sounded like you were saying earlier that you felt hollow, but also, I guess you were seeking for something, right? And so Mm -hmm. obviously, then therapy came in as well, which we can talk about some more too, (laughs) because again, in Asian cultures, you don't really seek a therapist. So I thought I would throw those kind of uh, questions out there for you to kind of bring us a fuller picture. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, so I'm, I identify as being a highly sensitive person and from a really young age, like just spirituality was something that seemed to be important to think about. 
you know, just like what what does the bigger world mean? And so I first came across yoga by myself in the bookstore. I just bought a book um, when I was 13 and then I just taught myself from that book. And at the time, it really wasn't very much of a thing here. But uh, over time, I think I just continued to nurture that. I mean, it started through yoga and then I explored different kinds of meditation and different kinds of energy healing, both receiving and then learning and training. So that was always that was always going in parallel alongside my 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 more typical good girl pathway. And I feel fortunate that for whatever reason there was this seed that was planted so early on that that I think helped me to see more clearly the hollowness of what it was that I felt like I needed to be versus how I felt when I was authentically enjoying and pursuing things that really mattered to me. So I think I had that contrast because that seed had been planted so early on. And I think that was what that was what was probably a really helpful reference point rather than how it might work for some people where it comes to a point where there is that awareness of the hollowness, but there actually isn't anything else to to recognize uh, as what feels true or what feels nourishing and what feels um, aligned to what matters to them. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of times when people get at, to that point, then they direct themselves to other distractions like yeah. alcohol or uh, other, other things. Um, so you were saying it took you about a year or so before you decided to quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of therapy work. What did you discover uh, during your therapy sessions that then gave you the confidence to be like, all right, I'm going to make this decision. My family's not going to be happy about this. I'm breaking the good girl archetype here. I'm setting myself free. (laughs) Uh, It was was, when I I think back to that time, it's quite funny because the therapist's office was a short walk from my, from my office, from, from where I was working. And um, you know, in the office, there'd be a certain construct, right? So being the good girl also applied in the office of how I present and how I speak and, um, you know, using using all of those appropriate words or ways of presenting myself. And then just a short walk down from, from that would be my therapist's office. And <laughs> in that space, I think I just came to really become aware of the tension, like the amount of tension between what on an instinctive level for me felt true. Like I was like at an instinctive level, I could not deny the sense that I actually need to leave. And the shoulds, the loudness of all the shoulds, like, oh, but I should stay. It's a stable job. And I should do this because I get opportunities my parents didn't have. But I should do this because all my peers who went to these schools, I ta- have all these kinds of good jobs, good jobs, right? See, even my language. Um, so I came to really hear that tension more clearly. And maybe because up to that point, I 
I hadn't really spoken about these tensions. It's it's a bit hard to uh, within family because the pressures exist there, and then amongst peers, I guess it would really have depended. But so many of my peers were also uh, in that mode of being good, whether a good girl or a good boy, and and I think that was the first time not only that I thought or saw the tension, but I felt that somatically within my body too. Feeling a sense of how how clearly something was amiss in my continuing working in this role. And at the same time, how much contraction, how much fear there was about choosing differently. I think that was really what, um, what therapy offered me at the time. And in the end, when I make my decision, it it again was just this like, I can't do it anymore. I'm just going to jump. It was that kind of feeling. And even after it took a while, you know, I feel like walking off the path that's been really well laid um, and well lit by other, other friends, by family, by the institutions, by society, taking the other path feels very uncomfortable. And uncomfortable also because I feel like when somebody walks a different path, it actually plants a seed of not necessarily doubt, but it plants a seed of curiosity in other people for whom that tension probably exists as well. And it makes them uncomfortable. To think, oh, why did you why did you do this? Like, why did you walk away from this stable job with a pension that you were earning so well in to, to not do anything, which I didn't for a while before I, I started to teach yoga classes and offer body work. But I think that that also made things uncomfortable for people who had known me or my peers who had gone through that similar pathway of being the good girl or the good boy. Yeah. So would you say that during that period, you, there was like a shift in terms of the friends you were hanging out with, like Mm -hmm. how your dynamic with your family was, um, how were you able to, I don't want, I don't know if coping is the right word here, Mm -hmm. but I think you understand what I'm getting at in terms of how did you deal with those emotions and you know again the fact that you made this choice and you are responsible for the choice you made Mm -hmm. to have left that very good girl archetype job to explore so you said you took a few years off to explore um and I guess really go inwards right to be like well who is Diana and and what does Mm -hmm. Diana want right what does Diana want to share in this world and uh, an offer. So how did you kind of go about that period until you found what, you know, what you decided on, which is the elemental practice here. And can mm. you like talk about that process? Like how you, you know, in that few years of turmoil, again, like you said, in hindsight, when you look back at it, it's, it was a beautiful journey, but not when you were in it, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. My short answer to you is awkwardly. <laughs> awkwardly that's how I manage and I I I guess I want to name that because I feel sometimes um, we get so hard on ourselves in the way we manage transitions but the reality is what seemed 
maybe to other people, like a shift in a job to me was a shift in identity and also a shift in responsibility. I mean, I love that you mentioned that, right? Like as I'm making this choice, I'm making this choice from the place of my agency and my autonomy. And I feel like that is also what makes it hard for many people to shift out of being a good girl. There's something very comforting about going, okay, I'm following along and this is what everybody approves of. It's sanctioned, it's allowed. And when it is that you make a choice like this, there is this clear sense that I have to deal with everything that comes from it, whether that is financial or emotional or whatever else might come in that territory. And and I think for me, what that looked like in the coping was continuing to spend a lot of time inwards, um, listening, spending a lot of time in nature, which inspires a lot of my work. There's something about nature in all of its different expressions that is valid. You don't look at a flower and go, gosh, why are your flower why why are your petals red? Why can't they be yellow? They, they just are. So I think spending a lot of time in nature, being with a lot of self-inquiry, and, and I think allowing space for all these different emotions of fear and confusion and anger or allowing the, the sense of being misunderstood, allowing space for all of that. And I don't feel like it was... Uh, a point that I was suddenly free from this archetype. I would say even till today, it's so firmly baked into my system that there are always little pockets that I discover and I'm, I, I get surprised, you know, I was like, oh, there you are. Okay, another, another remnant of this good girl archetype. And I feel like as I continued to stay on this course, right? To stay on this course that I'd chosen to have left, to be exploring um, body work as something I was offering as a service. The more I continued in that and showing up in quite a vulnerable way you know, to put forward into the world something that really mattered to me. Again, not something that, that someone told me was my title, not a piece of work that someone has dictated that I do, but something that I am choosing to offer. And letting over time that process give me confidence in what it was that I that mattered to me and the, the validity of that. But my parents certainly did not respond well to my choice. <laughs> they were horrified, really horrified. And it took us a while. It took us some space also before they were able to welcome my choice a little bit more. And part of shifting out of that good girl archetype was beyond changing the place of my work. It, it also catalyzed lots of other shifts, right? setting much clearer express boundaries with my parents around what was okay and not okay for me to be participating in whether it's conversations, whether it's obligations, uh, triangulations of, of 
dynamics. I also moved out of the house because I, I felt like it was important in order to get clearer about who I was and what mattered to me. It would be hard to figure that out within the power dynamics of living under my parents' roof and to to be able to have space to grow when I continued to be held within such fixed notions of who Diana was supposed to be. Yeah. I know we're not recording this on video, but I'm nodding my head every like <laughs> few sentences that you're saying. I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, agree, understand, totally, 100%. <laughs> um, so how, so, and I, I think I, I kind of brushed upon this earlier, but how did you eventually figure out that somatic was what you wanted to do uh, mm-hmm. as the choice for you? You know, um, could you share with us a little bit like your own experience? And, and I know it's all very intertwined into the, you know, the last 20 some minutes that we've been chatting already mm-hmm. about your, your growth and your, you know, your awakening, whatever terminology people like to use to call upon just kind of like finding your true essence, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So through your own experience with somatic uh, movement, how did that help you with clarity and how then did you decide like, well, you know, this is amazing. I want to, I want to be able to offer this to, Mm. to more people. Um, Mm. And then if I could just throw in there kind of, how did you, how did you slowly, slowly allow your parents and you know, those around you uh, and those who are close to you, like kind of quote unquote, get what you're doing, you know, kind of like what you said earlier, it's like, well, it took them a while. Like, I quit my job. I left the good girl archetype. And here I was just exploring all these different things. I moved out. I did all these things that they were kind of like, what is she doing? You know, such a well-educated girl, like, <laughs> da, 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 da. Like, why is she suddenly going all hippie now? Yeah. You know, or, or, or however, you know, we want, <laughs> we want to coin it. But how is it that they slowly um, started to see and understand mm. that. So I, I think they're, they're kind of intertwined as questions. So I, mm. I thought maybe you could illustrate a little bit more for us here. Yeah. Maybe I'll speak to that one first. Uh, you sound like you, you sound like, you know, you know, the, the Asian parent um, <laughs> language. Uh, I, I don't think my parents were surprised by this, like suppose it hippie choice. I've always been kind of hippie all this while, but they tolerated it uh, because I, I, and for the most part, was choosing the correct pathway. I, to be honest, I, I I want to kind of credit my parents for slowly but surely coming around to being more open. I I wouldn't say that even till today, like having done this for quite a few years, that they fully accept it. Uh, my, I think my dad up till recently would be asking or making comments around when, when are you going to go back to work? Like saying things like that, even though I'm clearly working and having client sessions and all of that, but for him, it, it wasn't a real job. And so I think there's still a little bit of that, but I think what helped strangely enough was 
was COVID, like the whole period where we couldn't really go anywhere. And my parents being a little bit older, I, I landed up going back home and I would offer them sessions, um, gentle touch sessions, and they would feel better for it. I, I feel that was probably what what swung things the most for my dad. And then also, um, also for my mom, them having the direct experience of maybe feeling much more ease, maybe feeling much more energy, being able to sleep better after having a touch session. That probably was, was the biggest thing for them, like realizing this, this isn't some concept. There's actually something that she does and maybe it's a benefit. I think just planting the seed of possibility and that that for me that they hold the possibility that maybe this work is of value is already a big step from where we first began when I decided to leave. And then to the second question of why or why somatic work. So I think for me as a highly sensitive person, I don't know how much or how familiar you are with this terminology of highly sensitive people that was coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron. And what I find really fascinating about that is the recognition that HSPs have brains that are wired differently. Brains that think very deeply, sometimes too deeply, uh, very analytically about everything. And I think what that means is it can be really challenging for me personally to engage in talk therapy because I know, I know, I know where someone's coming, coming at me with a question, like what, what they're hoping to hear, what they're wanting to find out. And something in me can give the right answer. I can perform in that moment to give the right answer. And after some time, it would maybe feel a little bit like a game and in contrast, whenever I've received more somatic-based work, whether that is like Feldenkrais, whether that is um, in the form of somatic therapy, I have found that I've been able to touch into places that I'm surprised by. And this is what's known as bottom-up healing. And I've, I've really come to recognize different memories, different emotions that were held, that were held so deeply that I didn't even have very active conscious awareness of. And for me, that has been where I've had the biggest shift and transformation in my own journey. And that leaves me with a, a deep seated and embodied belief that that can be a very powerful place of change for many other people. So I just want you to explain to our listeners who may not have heard the terminology highly sensitive individual. Mm -hmm. um, could you educate us a little bit about what a highly, edu uh, sorry, highly sensitive individual uh, entails or means? Yeah. So, so when, so firstly, I highly recommend you read the book because it's very comprehensive. Um, and What's the title I, of the book? I think it's What's just the called title? The Highly Sensitive Okay, person. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put but, it in the episode resource link below. Yeah, great. Because when I first read the book, it, it, it just set off so many ahas for me. And it's a book that I 
recommend to so many of my clients because many people who come to explore this work with me are themselves highly sensitive, whether or not they realized it before or not. And the key thing to recognize is that highly sensitive people's brains are wired differently. So it's not about someone being, uh, what's the term that they use? Like a strawberry or a snowflake. It's, it's not about somebody trying to be a certain way because they are weak-willed, because they want attention. But it's really a recognition that people are wired differently and that presents in the form of um, deep thinking about everything. That's one of the things I just spoke about. Another way it expresses is being very aware of the subtleties. So that could mean that somebody walks into a room and somebody who's highly sensitive will be able to notice the incongruence that exists between what the person's saying and how that person feels. And it might be something that somebody else won't be able to pick up on. So it becomes very hard to sometimes explain to a peer. Like, yeah, I something's off. And I don't know what it is. They're friendly, but something's off. And so I think we all have this ability, but for highly sensitive people, it's very much amplified. Um, the other thing is that their nervous system or our nervous system is particularly responsive. And I like to use that instead of reactive. And what that means is both in terms of challenging stimulus as well as positive stimulus, the response is much greater. So to somebody who's highly sensitive, if they were to encounter a place of beauty and awe, the level of awe is just through the roof. They move to tears. They can lie there for hours and appreciate the sky or the tree or the sunset, weeping the whole time, maybe. And at the same time, it also means when there's challenging stimulus, how their nervous system responds can be also very, very quick, where there is very high levels of activation from smaller triggers. And there is also an ability for highly sensitive people to have a keen sense of observation. Yeah, so just kind of noticing lots of different details in a space. And so that also means that they might feel much more affected by their environment, much more affected by the company that they're around because they're noticing all of these details. Yeah, so those are characteristics that make up someone who's highly sensitive and I think on a practical level what that often means because till today I feel it's still at least in Asia very much undiscussed as an example of a type that sits along that spectrum of neurodivergence it's not really mentioned you know and I think what that can what that can look like for someone is they spent their whole lives feeling like they're too much, like they're ashamed of feeling the way they do. Um, they've spent a lot of time repressing emotions because it feels like people can't handle it around them, and often that repression of all of that, all, all of that emotion can wind up showing up somatically showing up in terms of inflammation within the body, showing up in the form of depression or anxiety. So I feel that practical aspect of what happens when somebody's innate sensitivity isn't embraced, 
um, can can really lead to to real issues. And linking back to the the good girl archetype, what that also means is if somebody is highly sensitive and their nervous system is more responsive, if from a young age that is seen as a child trying to get out of doing something because they they're not trying hard enough, then a highly sensitive child can grow up constantly learning how to override what their threshold actually is. Constantly. Like, I need to do more. I'm exhausted, but I must do more. And it can also look like I have these needs, but my needs are not okay. The needs that other people express are the needs that I need to follow. So that can look like fawning, lots of fawning behavior, people-pleasing behavior. It can look like overachieving that at some point leads to burnout. So those are some aspects of how the highly sensitive person also links very closely with the good girl archetype that we were speaking about before. Mm, what a great summary. I think you... You really uh, shine light onto the work in somatic movement and uh, what highly sensitive people, uh, I guess, like that definition that we were talking about, right? And I think mm-hmm. it's so important to bring about across this awareness and educate people more and more, especially these days when so many people, even into their adulthood life, are you know, getting tests to see if they're, you know, uh, what, what's um, like their ADD or ADHD. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of this uh, health and mental health uh, talk, right, that's been happening. And a lot of people are trying to understand themselves better. Uh, but like you said earlier, there are so much levels and work that needs to be done in order for you to really, really get deep, deep, deep down into the core of it all, right? Like how long would you have said it t- took you from, when you decide to quit corporate to mm. starting your own company, you know, and, oh. and, and it's never ending. It's still ongoing. Like you mentioned mm-hmm. before too. Right. But just so we can kind of have like a little time frame of space and understanding. Yeah. It actually wasn't that long. I feel like a lot. So I think from the time that I left to the time I started, it was just six months. Oh, but, that's quite short. Yeah, but, but along the way, I think so from the time that I started, I continued to be in this unpacking and deconditioning of the good girl archetype. Yeah. yeah. So that was sort of ongoing as I continued to walk this path, this new path that was a little bit different, yeah. a little bit more uncharted. Yeah. It's very brave of you to start so quickly to like go <laughs> from one thing to party. <laughs> you know like just like throw yourself in there you know I feel like I've I, I definitely took much longer years mm. to to really to really be where we are talking about today like I'm comfortable with this like I don't want to do the corporate anymore this is the path mm. I want to be on and mm. even right now speaking to you in this episode it's like I'm still searching for that clarity of like, well, what am I offering? Right. But that's why I love these conversations. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, now that we've kind of covered the good girl archetype, how you broke away from it, mm-hmm. what kind of two cent or words of wisdom would you give to your younger self, what you know now, or that you would encourage other people? I mean, even your clients who come to mm-hmm. see you, 
you know, what kind of advice would you give them now that you know, like you kind of, you know, you've done the good girl archetype and you've mm-hmm. walked down the path and you've really worked through, um, you know, your highly sensitive self to mm-hmm. figure out like, well, this is the version of Diana that I want to live in the world. And mm-hmm. these are the things that I like and that I want to offer and this and that. Mm-hmm. It's actually really simple. I, I I feel like if I could go back in time and speak to my younger self, it would be to just let let her know you're okay as you are. Like really that you're okay as you are. And I feel that same idea is what what underpins a lot of the a lot of the client sessions that I have. Right. And so often people might come in and they just start crying because there is a sense that their emotions are okay to be in the shared space between us. Mm-hmm. Or when they're lying on the massage table receiving support that is safe, support that is attuned, support that's gentle, without them needing to do anything. Again, there is this sense of, oh, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm able and worthy and of enough value to receive support without me needing to effort for it, without me needing to be anything else other than how I am right now. It, it shows up also in one of the exercises I often do with clients when they first arrive which is in terms of exploring boundaries and consent and just having people feel like my needs however specific and particular that they might be move a little to the right oh I like your hand there oh I would like something here the more it is that somebody can feel allowed in their expression without there being a corresponding reaction, rejection, irritation. Again, there is that sense, yeah, I'm okay as I am. I have all of these specific needs, which might actually, from another perspective, be such precise understanding and awareness of what their body needs. Yeah, But yeah, I'm okay to have all of these specific needs and I can still be met and I can still be welcomed and not pushed away. So there is a real building of, of relational safety that might not have been possible, might mm. not have been available when someone was young. And I know for sure I, I would have wanted to offer that to myself too when I was yeah. younger. Wow, that's so nice. Um, so what now that you've like <clears throat> illustrated all of this and i and i like to always ask this question towards closer towards the end of our conversation mm. which we're we're coming close in time but like what keeps you grounded nowadays you know has that grounding effort or practice changed over the course of your exploration you know like when you mm. said earlier when you were younger and you were kind of you know doing what was expected of you um but you were also exploring this side of uh life so to speak you know meditation Mm. yoga and somatics 
uh, has that has that core changed for you over the years? Like what mm. what keeps you grounded today? Yeah. Oh, I love that invitation. I feel the constant for me has been nature. That has always been my go-to and it remains. When I get myself out in nature, I don't need to be doing very much. I just take a mat and I lie down. And after some time, everything just resettles. It's like water finding its level. So nature remains my constant. But I think in terms of the practices that supported me, they've they've changed. Um, I would say there was a period of time the practices I that really supported me were much more active. So for quite a while, I, I practiced quite a lot of active meditation using movement and sound as a way to find stillness. Now I would say Qigong is one of, one of the practices that I really appreciate because I love that in Qigong your eyes are open. I love that it's a standing practice. I love that it reminds it reminds me to remain upright in the world and open to the world while still feeling grounded and supported. So that probably is my practice now more mm. than some of the more dynamic practices I was engaging in before when I was younger. I love how you brought that up because it's so true. One like, you know, we all go through different chapters in our life. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think in the different chapters, you're constantly in different stages, different phases, doing different things. Right. And so you, I like how you described how your groundingness practice has evolved and changed over time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I definitely personally can resonate to that as well. I, I definitely did a lot of endurance sports in my younger days uh, and have kind of you know, the practice has now been less active and more energetic, so to speak, right? So mm. in, in terms of more like, yeah, there's a Qigong practice or meditation practice or mm. breath work practice. Um, but that takes time, you know, and I think it's not something where everyone has their entry point to it. And it just, it varies for everybody. Okay, so we're coming short on time, and I will ask you my last question, which I normally ask my guest, which is what resources would you recommend to those who are listening to this episode um, that have helped you along the way? Uh, or, you know, it could, all, it could be anything from yeah, a book or mentors or, you know, any, any kind of resources that really helped you. Um, or if it, I think for someone who might be interested in somatics, like somatic movement, mm. how can they get started? What would you recommend? So if you, and I'm, I'm sure you have a lot in your library of index, mm-hmm. uh, but if you could list out a few highlights that you really, you know, to your dear heart, it's always something you tell people. Um, and I know earlier you had mentioned the highly sensitive people. So I have that mm-hmm. down you can share mm-hmm. with us a few more um, that I'd be happy to put in the episode resources link below. Yeah. So I guess when I hear you ask that question, what comes to me and I guess it's it's not quite a resource in the same way as a book link, but the two practices that maybe people could just try for themselves. One of them is very much inspired by nature, relates to what I was sharing before. This idea of going out into nature and having a sit somewhere, the, the less curated and the more wild the nature landscape is, the better. And 
just noticing the diversity, just really sitting there with soft eyes and noticing the diversity of nature, how unique each plant is, how unique each tree grows, even of the same species, and finding beauty over time in that wild, diverse landscape. I feel like the more it is that we're able to notice that in the nature that surrounds us, the easier it is to appreciate the uniqueness of ourselves. So that's a practice anybody can do with you know, zero cost. And I think the other practice that I often, I often invite any clients to try is to offer a kind hand to themselves. And it sounds like a very strange phrasing. Sometimes people go, what do you mean a kind hand? And it's really putting a hand somewhere on the body. It could be at the center of the chest, could be at the belly, maybe both. And letting that hand soften soften in the way that maybe a parent might meet their sleeping child or you might meet their favorite pet or it could be the way in which you might meet a flower in a way that you don't want to disturb but you're there and and letting that be a way to meet oneself when when there's joy but when there's sadness when there's aloneness and I feel that in that support that we can offer ourselves in those moments of challenge, the more it is that we we give ourselves permission with whatever is showing up. Um, and I feel to go back to that good girl notion, it, it continues to support us being as we are, even if it might not follow so so firmly that notion of what a good girl might look like. Yeah. Mm. I love those two recommendations. This mm. is a one of the few individuals on on Kirito Connects that have not listed a book or a podcast <laughs> and very practical suggestions. I love it. Thank you so much. Mm. Um, well, did you have anything else you wanted to add to our conversation before we wrap up and say bye? <laughs> I just enjoyed speaking about all of this with you. Thank you for oh. having me on. Thank you for sharing. And I, um, again, will put your information below. So people who are in Singapore or who are interested, because you do some online work as well, right? Mm -hmm. So people who are interested or curious could definitely reach out to you. And uh, let's see what happens. I don't know. Maybe we can do something together as well. (laughs) So thank you again and wishing all the best. Thank you, Jen. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Curito Connects. For more Connects content, collaborations, and discoveries set to inspire you on your own individual journey, please head to our website at www.curito.co. Until next time, stay inspired and thank you for joining us at Curito Connects.